Well, amen. You may be seated, and let me first of all introduce myself. My name is Alan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Downtown Church. And let me invite you to take your Bible, and if you would, find the book of Ephesians, the letter, Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to Ephesus, Ephesians chapter number one. As you're finding your way there, as we're thinking about this particular letter, we are introduced to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. In fact, when we first encounter, when we first meet him, his name is not Paul, but he actually is referred to as Saul. Saul is a Jew, and he hates the church. In fact, Saul is doing everything within his power to kill, to destroy the early church. He is a persecutor of Christians. But Saul has a life-changing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And his life is so radically changed, radically transformed, that Saul is now known as Paul, and Paul begins to, in fact, plant churches. And he begins, he launches, plants many, many different churches In fact, not only does he start churches and plant churches, he then begins writing letters to churches, encouraging them. In fact, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, there's probably been not another human being that's made a greater impact in Christianity than the Apostle Paul. Now, what's interesting is is that his impact in Christianity doesn't begin when he's a small boy or a teenager, but he's he's midlife when he begins this work of advancing the gospel. In fact, much of his ministry is not even done out and about, but much of Paul's ministry was actually done from a prison. In fact, the letter that you and I are going to read this morning, the the part of this letter was written from a prison cell. But the Apostle Paul, in writing these many letters, in these letters, there are some prayers, the prayers of Paul. And I really felt like, just probably about maybe a couple of months ago, as I was thinking about downtown church, as I was thinking about our own faith, our own journey, I really felt like, you know, this is a time in which we ought to learn from the Apostle Paul and maybe how to pray. There are some things that Paul is saying to the church, some truths that he wants them to know. He wants them to dig a bit deeper. He wants them to experience more than what they've already experienced. And so he teaches them. He says, listen, when I pray for you, this is how I'm praying for you. In fact, this is how I think you should pray for your own faith, for your own journey. And so I think it's important for you and I to examine that together. And so today we're going to look at the first prayer that Paul prays and to the Ephesians, and then next week we'll look at another prayer, and we'll just spend some time the next couple of weeks learning to pray like Paul. In fact, if you would, if you would just stand with me as I read out loud this prayer, this word from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse number 15. You can follow along there with your Bible. We have the scripture on the screens, but Paul says, for this reason, 
Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You kind of and picture Paul, he's like, a, he's like a proud dad. He says, you know, I've just heard about your faith. I've heard what, what God is doing in your life. And I just give thanks to you. And, I, and I've been praying for you. And this is how he says he prays. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, that your, your eyes may be open. In fact, he says that may be enlightened, may be flooded with light. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, flooded with light, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So Paul says, this is how I pray for you. I pray that you would have wisdom and knowledge. And the revelation of who he is and who you are in him. That you would understand the hope that you have in him. That you would, you would fully grasp the immeasurable power that is available. He says, I pray that your eyes would be opened to what you really have. So before we sit and before we dive in, here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray that our eyes would be opened this morning. That we would see what God has for us. Would you just bow your head and, and would you just maybe silently right where you are, would you pray this? Would you pray, God, open my eyes this morning that I may see what you have for me. And Lord, that is our prayer. Open our eyes that we may see what you really have for us today. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you, as you're finding your seat, would, would believe this? If I were to ask you, do you believe that God has a plan and a purpose for your life? Would you raise your hand if you believe that God has a plan and a purpose for your life? Okay. How many of you would say, yes, Alan, I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for my life. How many of you would say that you believe that there is an enemy? There is an adversary to do everything that he, he can in his power so that you wouldn't experience God's plan and God's power for your life. So the Apostle Paul knew that for these Christians, these believers, that yes, God had a plan and God had a purpose. God had his best for his people. But he also knew that there was an enemy and the enemy is always at work doing everything he can so that God's people won't experience the plan and the purpose of God. Now, the enemy, his strategy is fairly simple. It's the same strategy he used from the book of Genesis in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. It's the same strategy he uses against me and against you to come against the plan and the purpose of God. The first thing that the enemy uses, is he uses doubt. If he could cause you to doubt, 
to doubt the things of God, to doubt the word of God, to doubt the plan of God, the purpose of God, the joy of God, the power of God. If he could cause you to doubt, he uses doubt and he uses discouragement. I've said this to you many times if you've been around. The number one tool the devil uses in Alan's life is discouragement. He uses doubt, he uses discouragement, and he uses distraction. Can he distract you from the greater things, the better things that God has? So the Apostle Paul knew that these Christians, as they're seeking to grow, as they're seeking to experience that which really God had for them, that there was an enemy that was going to try to use doubt and discouragement and distraction. And if the enemy can use any of these, what it causes in the life of a family or a church is division. So the Apostle Paul knew that. And the Apostle Paul knew that because he was in prison, he wasn't going to be able to be with the church. He wasn't going to be with them in order to teach them and show them certain things. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, I'm writing you this letter, and I'm so very grateful for what God has done in your life. But I also know there's an enemy. And there are some things that I need you to know. There are some things that I need to put great emphasis on for you to understand. Because I can't be with you. But this is how I'm praying. And this is what I pray you would know. And he lists there four truths that I think that are so crucial, that are so important for us as a Christian to get. Paul says, there's just some things I just need you to get. In fact, this is how I pray for you, and this is how you are to pray. So I want you to write them down. This is how Paul's praying for the church, for the Christians. This is how you and I should pray. Number one, Lord, that I may know your life-giving word. Lord, that I may know your life-giving word. Look at verse number 17. This is how he begins to pray. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul says, here's how I pray, and here's how you should pray. That you have spiritual wisdom and you have revelation when it comes to the knowledge of him. Spiritual wisdom and revelation Regarding the knowledge of him. Knowledge of who? Knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now here's the beauty of you and I living here 2,000 years later, sitting here this morning, this Lord's Day at downtown church. Watch this. Look up here. Everything you need, everything you need to know, the wisdom that you need, the revelation that you need, and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus is right here in this book. Everything you need, everything you need to live the Christian life in wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus is right here in this book. So when somebody says, man, I just wish I knew Jesus like this person knows Jesus. Man, I just wish I had a, an understanding of the Lord like that person has. Listen, here's the beauty. You have just as much accessibility to the wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of Jesus than I do or David Cagle or anyone else 
because you have this book. It's here. So it's really just how much do you want? How much do you desire it? And so what Paul says is that, listen, my prayer for you is that you would have an incredible understanding and wisdom and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And what you and I have, they didn't have. You're able to hold this book. It is God's revelation of his son, his plan for your life right here in this book. So how you and I need to grow and how, gain in our wisdom and our revelation is according to this book. There's some, some things that he's given us, and this primarily is the number one way that we gain in wisdom, spiritual wisdom, and revelation, knowledge of him. So I, I try to do this periodically, but let me help you as you read through the Scripture. I, I say that every Christian every day needs to spend time in the Word. W-O-R-D. Take your pencil, take your pen, and write down those four letters. W-O-R-D. And so when I begin each day, and I want wisdom I want a greater understanding. I need for the Lord to reveal himself to me. This is what I do. I begin in his word. And I begin, by the way, from where I left off the day before. If yesterday I was in John chapter 15, then today I'm in John chapter 16. I just believe in a systematic reading, studying of the scripture. There are some people who believe that they ought to take a lottery approach, right? Every day they just kind of get their Bible and they just kind of thumb through it and say, God, speak to me today. And I, I just don't believe that's the best approach. I believe in more of a systematic reading meditation, study of the Scripture. So again, if yesterday I was in John chapter 15, today I'm in John chapter 16. But the first thing that I do in my journal is I write a W, word, and I write down what is the passage of Scripture, what am I reading today? Is it John chapter 16, verses 1 through 10? Then I write down John chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. And then I begin reading the Word of God. And then I write down O, O for observation. And this is the question that I'm, as I'm reading and rereading that particular passage, I'm asking, who is Jesus talking to? What's the context? What's, what's the situation? What's the circumstance? And I begin asking myself these questions. What is going on here in this particular passage? What is Jesus saying? What is Paul saying? What is God saying? What is the context? So I'm looking for the observation. I'm trying to dig out the truth of that particular passage. What is the truth? What is the message? Right? And then next I write R for reflection. So as I get a pretty good understanding of what God is saying in his word, what the teaching is, what the lesson is, now I'm reflecting it back on me. Okay, Lord, how does this apply to Alan? 
How does this apply to me and my life today? Yes, this occurred 4,000 years ago. Yes, this occurred 2,000 years ago. But how does this apply to me? Lord, how do I take your word today and apply it to my life? So now I'm putting application in my life. And as God begins to show me how I can take that truth, that message, and apply it to my life, then I write down the letter D. And I'm going to discuss it. I'm going to discuss it first with God, and then I'm going to seek to discuss it sometime that day with someone else. So when I say I discuss it with God, I bow my head, and I say, Lord, thank you for the truth that you've given me today. And Lord, you are speaking here in your word about diligence, about patience, about peace, about hope, whatever that truth is. Lord, I'm asking that you help me to apply this truth to my life. God, do a work in me that throughout the day today, I may put into practice your word. And then what I do sometime during the day, I'm looking for an opportunity to take the truth that I learned and discuss it with someone else. I may be at a restaurant. I may be at a meeting. Maybe David Cagle and I are having lunch and we're talking about a scenario. And I would say to David, you know, just this morning, I was spending time in the word, and I felt like the Lord speak to me about this particular truth. And I look for an opportunity to share it with someone else. Now, the reason I do that is that you know this, for those of you that are teachers, maybe educators, is that if you can take a truth and you can actually share it with someone else, it actually helps become a part of more of your truth, a reality in your life. So God gives us, I think, Two big things to help us grow in our spiritual wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge in him. Primarily, number one, this book, his word. Number two, groups. We call them here at Downtown Church, life groups. David Cagle talked about a life group that, that Andy and Casey and their wives, that they launch together, they teach together. Uh, listen, I would say this, we generally learn more from the lives of others than we do just living and learning from our own life. You see, you only know what you know, right? You only know what you know. But if I'm in Casey and Andy's life group and with their wives and I sit in there over a period of time reading and studying the scripture, guess what? I don't know just what I know, but I learn from their lives. I learn from them. And cooperatively, collectively, you can learn more about the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the Lord collectively than you can individually. How many of you are in a group? Would you raise your hand if you're in a group? Fantastic. Probably about 60% of you, maybe 70% of you are in a group. How many of you that are in a group and have been in a group would say that your life group, being in a group, has been a pivotal, important part of your spiritual growth? Would you raise your hand? See there? We learn more collectively than we do individually. Why? Because you only know what you know. But if you're in a group, you can learn more in this wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the Lord. So Paul says, number one, pray, Lord, that I may know your life 
life-giving word that I may know it and that what? I may obey it. And then there's a second prayer. There's a second prayer that he prays, and that is this. Lord, that I may know my life-changing hope. Lord, that I may know my life-changing hope. Look at verse number 18. He goes on with this prayer, and he says in verse number 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may have and know the hope to which he has called you. We talked a little bit about hope last week. But hope in the Bible is very different than the way we use the word hope today. See, we use the word hope today almost like the word wish. You know, I have Friday off and I and I may say, you know, I hope that I get to play golf on Friday, right? What am I saying? I, I'm saying I, I, I'm wishing, I'm, I'm hoping that I get to play golf on, on Friday. Or we may say, you know, I have a meeting this afternoon across the bay. I sure hope there's not a lot of traffic as I make my way across the bay. When we use the word hope today, it generally means or carries the idea of a wish, but when the Bible uses the word hope, it means much more than that. It actually means a confident expectation, a confident assurance. As a matter of fact, hope is this. Think of it, hope in the Bible is a confident expectation and assurance in the promises of God. That's what hope in the Bible means, a confident expectation and assurance in the promises of God. It means much more than a wish. Now, last week, we, uh, I shared with you really my favorite verse in all of the Bible when it comes to uh, hope. It's found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 in verse number 19. And it says this, and we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So the writer there says that hope is like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's what hope is. Hope is an anchor. And I gave this illustration that back when this was written, those ships if they're, if they're needed to go into a particular harbor, but if the tide was low, they would lower the anchor in a smaller boat. They would take the anchor into the harbor. They would lower the anchor so that the anchor is steadfast and sure and, and, and secure in that harbor so that whatever may happen before the tide would rise, whether it was a storm, uh, a difficulty, whatever it may be, that that ship was steadfast. It was safe because the anchor was already secure. And then when the appointed time, when the tide would rise, then the ship would make its way to where the anchor was into the harbor. The writer of Hebrews says that hope, hope for the Christian, is like a sure and steadfast anchor 
that whatever happens in life today, whatever the trial, whatever the storm, listen, you are safe and steadfast because, listen, your soul is already anchored in heaven, not just in heaven, but what does it say? Behind the veil, behind the, in the holy of holies. I mean, where the very presence of the Lord is. Regardless of what happens, listen, you have a confident expectation and assurance of eternal life. So our hope is not only for the future, but our, future, our hope is even for the here and now. Write this down in your notes, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse number 13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in what? In what? Say it. Hope. Now look up here. So here's what the Bible teaches. As a Christian, as a child of God, we have hope. It's an anchor for my soul. It's an anchor for my soul for, for all of eternity. I don't need to worry about my future because my future has been decided. I mean, listen, my soul has this anchor that's already in the holy of holies. But it's not just for all of eternity, but even the here and now. Because why? Because he has placed in me his spirit his Holy Spirit, to give me a fullness of what he say, joy and peace. I can have joy and peace right here, right now, because of the Holy Spirit that has given me this abounding hope. So when you and I live, this is what Paul is saying. Paul says, listen, when Paul's writing to the church, here's what he's saying. There are going to be times that are dark, times in which you may even feel a bit hopeless. You're going to want to quit. You're going to want to give up. So I'm praying that you would have this understanding that your eyes would be opened to the hope that you have in his calling. As a matter of fact, where is our hope? Where is our hope? He says in the verse here, in verse number uh, 18, the hope to which he has called you. Your hope is in the calling. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. That's where your hope is. Because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have hope. It is an anchor for your soul. And no matter what you face, no matter what you experience, because of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can have joy and you can have peace. Hope is the confident expectation and assurance in the promises of God. Can I give you a couple of quick promises that can give you joy and peace and confidence and assurance? Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you know the reason why you should have hope today? God's not done with you. He's still working in you and working on you. You are still 
If you have breath in your body, you are still under construction. God is working in your life. Do you know why you shouldn't quit? Do you know why you should have hope? It's because God's working in your life. Amen? Can I give you another promise? Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. What does the Bible say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those that are called according to his purpose. Here's the promise, that whatever happens in your life, God can bring good out of it. Not that everything that happens to you is good, but that he promises that he brings good out of it. Do you know why you shouldn't quit? Do you know why you should have hope? Do you know why hope is the anchor for your soul? It's because he's still working on you. And whatever happens to you, God can bring for his glory and for your good. Last week, I made a comment. Last Sunday, I said, you know, last Saturday, I conducted the funeral of a little boy. And uh, right after the services, I was making my way out. One of the members here at downtown church pulled me aside and said, Pastor, there's no way I could do what you do. I said, what do you mean? He said, when you talk about doing those funerals, he said, you do all of those funerals. You are around death and dying so much. There's just no way I could do what you do. You know what I said to him? There's no way I could do what I do if I didn't have hope. If I didn't have hope of the future, if I didn't have hope that this world isn't it. Friend, listen, can I remind you, this old world today is crazy. It's crazy. But this world is not the end. There's no way I could do what I'd do if I didn't have hope. But I have an anchor for my soul. And let me just say to you, the anchor holds. The anchor holds. Paul says there's some things that you're missing. There's some things, church, I want you to get how I pray for you and how you should pray. Number one, that you would just have a knowledge, a spiritual wisdom and, and revelation, the knowledge of him. And, and number two, that you would have a, uh, that you may know the life-changing hope. And number three, he says, Lord, that I may know my tremendous worth. That I may know my tremendous worth. So he goes on to say in verse number 18, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You ought to underline that phrase in your Bible. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Oftentimes, in fact, most often, when you and I think about the inheritance that the Bible speaks of, what we generally think of is our inheritance. As a matter of fact, right here in Ephesians chapter 1, back up to verse number 14. Look at verse number 14. Who is the, talking about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he has placed in every Christian his spirit, his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The word there carries the idea of, of, of a promissory note, 
of earnest money. If you were to ever make a purchase, maybe purchase a home, you put down earnest money. You put down a guarantee, right? In other words, it's an assurance that you're going to conclude the deal. So God says, I have placed in you my Holy Spirit as an, as an earnest, as a promissory note, as a guarantee that you will get the full inheritance. So you see, today I walk around with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee from God that one day when I, go, when I die and I enter glory, guess what I'm going to experience? Guess what I'm going to receive? My inheritance as a child of God. Amen? That's not what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1 in these latter verses of the prayer. He's not talking about your inheritance. What does he say? Go back and look at that latter part of verse number 18. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Not your inheritance, his inheritance. Now, Alan, what does that mean? Here's what he says. Listen, stay with me. He says, you are so valuable. If you could somehow understand your worth because you are the inheritance of the Lord Jesus. You are, the, you are his inheritance. You are so valuable to him that he sees you as you are his inheritance. When I was in seminary, I was serving in churches and I was doing everything that I could possibly do to, to, to be a good Christian and, and live the Christian life. And I really was, I had become a very legalistic Christian. And I had this encounter with this pastor. And he spoke this truth into my life. And here's what he said, Alan, if you were sitting right now, toe-to-toe, knee to knee, eye to eye, to the Lord Jesus. Toe to toe, knee to knee, eye to eye with Jesus. What do you think he would say to you? And you know what I immediately said? Alan, I'm disappointed in you. He said, that's not what he would say at all. If you were toe-to-toe, knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye with Jesus, this is what he would say to you. I love you, and you are so valuable to me. The Bible teaches that you are his inheritance. That you may know, Paul says, I pray that you would know that your eyes would be open, that your heart would be flooded with the understanding of the riches of his inheritance, that you are as a part of the saints. What the enemy wants you to believe is that God just tolerates you and that you are worthless and your life doesn't count for much. That's the lie that he wants you to believe. As a matter of fact, I think the average Christian is living about 35 miles an hour, just going about your business, when really what God has for you is to be living full out, maxing it out, living for Jesus. 
But because you believe the lie of the enemy, that you are worthless and your life doesn't count. But here's what the scripture says. You are invaluable as his inheritance. A few weeks ago, I was called to do a funeral. And the man that I called, it was a funeral for his dad. And uh, he said, meet me over at my dad's place, and and we'll talk about the service. So I went over to dad's place, and I went in, and there was furniture, there was belongings. It was The house was just kind of in disarray, and there was was, uh, blue painter's tape and yellow tape, little pieces of tape marked all over, different pieces of furniture and, and items and things. And I just, it looked like a little blue tape bomb had gone off and a little yellow tape bomb had gone off. And I just kind of began looking and here's what he said. He goes, well, my sister and I have been going through taking tape and we're marking what we want. This is, he he, he literally, he says, this is our inheritance. And he says, and we're marking what we want. And I'm telling you, that image in my mind has kept with me because let me tell you something. Long before you were ever born, the Lord himself took a little tape and he marked you. He claimed you as his own. The Bible says you are his inheritance and he wanted you and he marked you as his very own. You have value. You have worth and he loves you. And Paul says, I need you to know that. Know it. Let me give you the last one because we're out of time. Lord, that I may know your incredible power. That I may, that, that you, that I may know your incredible power. Look at verse number 19. We need to go very quickly. Y'all need to listen quickly because we only have a couple of minutes. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Take your pencil, take your pen. There's four words that you need to underline that Paul uses to describe this power. First of all, underline the word power. It's the words, the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. But also the word dynamo. Dynamite is just one expression of power, like boom, and that's it. Dynamo is this ongoing power. That's the word that's used here. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working. You ought to underline that word working. It's the word energia. It's where we get our word energy, right? It's that operating power. You want to know how you can do that which God has for you? He gives you the energy. He gives you the the operating energy of his great might. Underline that word might. That word might. It means um, a powerful force. Powerful force. The force of power. And then underline the word great. The word great there carries the idea of, 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 of ultimate of ultimate. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, listen, you don't just have power, but you have this immeasurable power, this this dynamo that is available to you, that's operating in you with his great 
powerful force, and it's working in you. Now, what kind of power is it? Specifically, what kind of power? Write this, Romans chapter 8, verse number 11. It's the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What kind of power? Evidently, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is in you. Are you sure? Well, let's go back. Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at verse 19 again. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Verse number 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What kind of power, what kind of dynamo, what kind of operating energy and force that's work in you by the Holy Spirit? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. You mean, Alan, I've got that power in me? If you believe, if you have the Holy Spirit, yes, you do. Well, then if I have it, how come I don't have it? That's a great question. Here's the key. We're done. He says that same power that raised Jesus back to life and then seated him in the heavens where he rules and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords, where at this very moment he rules, he reigns, he is the lord of all lords. The question is not, is Jesus lord? He is. He's seated at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. The question is not, is he lord? The question is, have you, acknowledged his lordship is he your lord that's the question see here's the reality god's power flows in you when jesus is lord of you can i say that again his power flows in you when jesus is lord in you he is lord but have you acknowledged have you bowed? Have you surrendered to his lordship? It's when he is lord in you, ruling and reigning in every aspect of your life, that his power flows in you and through you. So that, listen, there is no sin that you can't overcome. There is no obstacle too hard. There is mount, There are no mountain too high. There is no addiction too strong. Listen, strongholds break in his power. And his power flows in you when Jesus is Lord in you. Amen? Let's bow together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that in these next moments, for these in this room that have yet to acknowledge and yield and surrender 
to your power, to your lordship. I pray this very morning in this very room, those that need to turn from their sin and selfishness would trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Lord, I pray for the Christians here this morning who have been believing the lies of the enemy that they're worthless and there is no hope and there is no power. Lord, I pray that their eyes would be opened, that there is so much more. There is so much more. Lord, if there's a word that I could say to every man, woman, young person in this room, is there is more. There is more for you. There is more, much more. Strongholds can be broken every stronghold can be broken every addiction can be broken every mountain can be overcome every obstacle overcome Lord that we may know your word and obey it that we may have the life changing hope that is in us that we may understand our value, our worth, and that we may live in your power daily. So Lord, in these next moments, we hand over to you. We yield to you these strongholds, these obstacles. And we bow our knee and giving you rightful place in our lives. Lord over us. Lord 